0: But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and, he, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. This is the word of the Lord. You have a seat. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would give us grace... This morning, give me grace as I speak. May you guide the words that I say. Give us all grace as we hear from your word. That we would hear what it is that you would want us to hear. Lord, that it would change the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we believe, and the way that we act. We pray all this in your name. Amen. You know, we speak of faith like the starting blocks for the race of life in Christ. The gun sounds, we shoot off the line by faith. Now faith then has served its purpose. Now we need to get to running, right? But faith isn't merely what gets us started. It's not merely the starting blocks. It's more like our feet. We run the whole race by faith. It's what supports and what moves us. Many of us come out of the starting blocks strong, only to proceed to attempt to run the race on our hands. When we start, we start by faith. We come out, boom. And then immediately we flip over onto our hands and we're, trying to run along on our hands now, instead of by faith. And maybe that could work for a time. I mean, it depends on how good you are at walking on your hands. I knew a kid one time, he could walk on his hands faster than I could run. I swear to you, I was a very uncoordinated child, though, so that may have had a uh, part to do that, and I was a very slow child. So that may have had something to do with it, but he, he could. He would race kids at recess backwards. He was fast. Anyway, I digress. Perhaps walking on your hands could work for a time until you realize that life is not a 100 meter dash. It's the 110 hurdles. And it's very difficult to hurdle on your hands, isn't it? I just imagine for a second what that looks like. It's not pretty. You run, now, now if I was on my feet, I would run through the hurdles still, but definitely if I was on my hands, I would just be running through the hurdles. Once we get to that first hurdle in our life, we are a total mess because we're trying to run the race of life by something other than faith. This is not how God intended it. This is not how Jesus intended the Christian life. Not, Not to refer to the hurdles part because there will be hurdles. I want you to understand that God absolutely intends there to be hurdles in your life. Rather, that we aren't to be those who are just trying to survive, crashing through hurdle after hurdle after hurdle until finally we get to the finish line. I've ran a few challenge courses. I don't know if anyone's ever ran a challenge course. You're aware of what challenge courses are. You know, they, they set out this long, you know, course, a few miles or whatever, and they've got all these obstacles everywhere. You got, you know, pits of water and mud and things to crawl under and things to crawl over and all sorts of things going on, people going through these things that otherwise any, of these, any single of these obstacles would have made it their worst day of their life, right? Like if you're just, if you're just going for a walk and suddenly there was like a mud pit you had to go through, It'd be the worst day. It'd be like, this is the worst moment of today. You've to- it's totally been ruined. But on that day, because you came to run the challenge course, suddenly there's smiles on everyone's faces. It's like, all right, let's charge through this. What's wrong with these people, right? They knew what they were in for, for the most part. They knew what would get them through as well. And they, and they were excited to compete at it. And they're excited to complete it. So it is with living by faith in Christ. That's what faith in Christ does to life. Here's the bottom line that, that I want you to walk away with this morning trusting Christ for all of life is the road to the kingdom. You need to understand the road that you're on and what it takes to get to the finish line, to the destination. How can we trust Christ more in all of our life? Well, it helps if we understand three aspects of faith. First, faith sets our sights on the finish line that it'll be worth it. And this is what I'm going to call this morning the outcome of faith. The outcome of faith. Second, faith reorients our perspective so that we really commit We give everything to this race that we're on, and this is what I'm going to call the nature of faith. And second, or third, I mean, it gives us a reason to run, a reason to believe that we can be victorious, we can get to the finish line, and that's the object of faith. So let's look at the outcome of faith, and the outcome of faith is this, hope, and we see this in verses 1 through 8. Why does Jesus tell this parable about this widow? Well, the text tells us right at the beginning. Did you see that? He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Luke tells us exactly why Jesus is telling the disciples this parable, so that they would pray and not lose heart. So first to encourage prayer, not merely just the act of praying, but to Get at what is behind the prayer, right? It's not merely just going through motions of praying, but to get at what's behind it. And what prayer is the number one practical indicator of faith in God. You want to know whether you have faith in God? How often are you praying to what? extent are you praying? When you face different things in your life, do you pray about those things? That is a good indicator of how much you are putting your faith in God or something else. So first is to encourage prayer, but the big reason is to not lose heart, that they would have hope. Remember the context. Remember last week, the last couple of weeks, we were in Luke Luke 17 And the question there was, when will the Son of Man come to judge all the evildoers? When will the Son of Man come and take care of this problem that we're facing, the enemies of God that are coming against us, that are doing evil and doing injustice? When is he going to come and set things right? Immediately, Jesus turns and he tells them this parable. He wants our faith to produce hope. But how does faith become hope? How does that happen? Well, Jesus makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. He tells the story about a widow who is suffering injustice. Even a bad judge eventually will set that right if they continue, if she continues to ask and continues to ask. And he says, How much more will our Father in heaven do this for the elect? You don't even have to ask very much. He'll do it because he is just. He's not like the unjust judge. He's just. The judge doesn't care about the widow. He only cares about himself to not have to listen to her complain. But God actually cares about you. And speedily, it says. But we need to understand that God's timetable may not always be like ours. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. Remember, they were insisting, when will the Son of Man come and do justice? And Jesus continues to tell them, what I'm doing right now is I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to the cross to save people. I'm bringing people from under the, the judgment of God, the rightful judgment of God, into my mercy. So it may seem like it takes a long time to us, but the Lord is not slow to fill his promises, as some count slowness. But what what about this final question in this section? Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? And I think that context that I'm just referring to makes a big difference in how we understand this sentence. Many take this question negatively as if he will find few. The the reason he's asking this question, they say, is because he, he will find few with faith On the earth when he returns. This is due, I think, more to the phrase how it's translated in English than how Theophilus would have read it in the Greek words that Luke wrote. You see, the Greek neither implies a negative sense nor a positive sense. The Greek words that's used actually implies a very neutral sense to the to the question. It seems odd to me that right after Jesus declares he will bring justice. I will bring justice. I will do this. And remembering that Jesus says his justice is filled with mercy, right? Which would lead us to believe that he will effectively save many, not few. And the fact that throughout Luke, a repeated theme is that Jesus delays his judgment, just as I was saying, in order to bring salvation to more and more people, which is what his, his contemporary religious audience wasn't getting about what he was doing, right? It seems odd to me to take when we take all that into all that context into uh, uh, factor it all into the equation. It seems odd to me that this question would be have been meant in a negative sense. So, my conclusion is that rather than implying few believers, I think what he is doing is he's prodding the disciples to endurance in their faith, to endure in their faith, in his work. Which is the point of the parable, that they would continue to have faith and not lose heart, right? That they would continue to have faith and not lose heart, even when in the moment, it doesn't seem very good. In that way, then he's asking, essentially, do you believe at my return that I will have accomplished the purpose for which I have come this time? Do you believe disciples, that what I am going to Jerusalem to accomplish right now, that when I return, I will have accomplished that thing. And if you believe it, endure in that. And if you are enduring in that faith, then you will continue to pray and not lose heart. And what is the thing that he was seeking to accomplish that we've seen throughout Luke over and over again? What is it all the way back in Luke 2? Let me turn back real quick. Do you remember what Simeon said when he saw Jesus in the temple? Baby, just baby Jesus. He says this, "'For my eyes have seen your salvation.'" Luke 2.30-32, 30 through 32, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What Jesus is doing is he's bringing salvation to the nations. What is prophesied about him that Luke keeps referring to over and over again in the, from the Old Testament is that Jesus has come to bring salvation to more and more people, to bring in his elect from all the corners of the earth, Isaiah says, the promise from Genesis 12 is what? To Abraham, that through your seed, I will bless all nations, all peoples of the earth. Jesus is fulfilling it. If you believe that I will do it, he says, if you believe that I will actually accomplish this, even if in this moment it doesn't quite seem like we're getting at it yet, if you believe that, then you will pray, you will pray to that end, and you will not lose heart. You'll have hope. What transforms faith into hope is enduring through suffering, the kind of suffering that Jesus is about to go through. Romans 5, 2 through 5 tells us faith and suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces what? Hope, right? Suffering tests our faith. Endurance refines our character. Character reveals the genuineness of our faith. And we look at ourselves and we go, it's true, I see because I see God working in me, because he's empowered me to endure through this suffering because I continue to have faith in Him even though I go through this thing. And what does that do? It reassures us and we gain hope. When we come through suffering, we have this confidence added. How could I have gone through this suffering if the Spirit of Christ isn't at work in me? If the Spirit of Christ wasn't at work in me, I would have turned away from Jesus long ago. And yet I didn't. And yet here I still stand, not because I'm so great, but because of Christ and what He's done. We rejoice because our hope in Christ is enlarged. Then James one tells us we should consider it joy when we have trials, because we can see our salvation in our lives through our being sanctified in those things. First Peter one tells us that in this we rejoice because we know we are obtaining the salvation of our souls. First Peter says. It's through suffering, faith through suffering, that we take hold of that salvation. Listen, we know the road of faith leads to the kingdom, and that gives us hope. When you're going down the road, you know when you're on a road and you can see out far in the distance, and you can see what's out there. And you go, oh, yeah, I see where I'm going. And then you go down into the valley, and what happens? the destination becomes eclipsed by the hill in front of you, right? And you can't see it, and there's this moment where you go, am I still on the right road? Am I still on the right trail? Am I still heading the right direction? I know, I know that earlier I looked, and that was the way the road was going, but, but now that I'm walking, on, I can't see the destination right now because of this obstacle. And we continued to walk, trusting, and we crest that next hill, and we see the destination again. And then we go, yeah, I can trust this road. This road is true. This road is right. You may be in one of those valleys right now. And my encouragement to you is this, don't don't take the spur trail. Don't turn to the left or the right. Continue down the road to the kingdom. Hope, have hope. You will crest the next hill. It will happen. So what's the nature of faith? We see this in three scenes in verses 9 through 30 that illustrate the character of the the nature of true faith. True faith comes from a a particular attitude. It produces a particular perspective, one that's humble and dependent and complete. The story of the tax collector and the Pharisee, we see that the nature of faith is humble. It's not self-righteous. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector come to the temple to pray. The Pharisee comes justifying himself. You know, you can see him standing there praying out loud. Uh, Thank you, Lord. I'm such a great person. Not like that guy over there, you know. And, um, and I do these great things. I'm not so bad, and I fast, and I give, and that's pretty good. And I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. I mean, certainly, don't be an extortioner. Don't be unjust. Fasting is great. Giving is great. You should do those things. But you need to understand that they're not sufficient to justify you before an holy and almighty God. You see, a hammer isn't bad when used for the right purpose, but when you use it for the wrong purpose, it destroys everything. And if, you are try- if you're trying to use those things to justify yourself, you will destroy your life. The tax collector instead comes humbly, right? Falling on his knees, beating his breast, it says. He can't even lift up his eyes. Again, the point isn't the action so much, but it's the heart behind the action. If fasting and giving doesn't justify the Pharisee, then beating your breast and falling on your knees and not lifting your eyes isn't going to justify you either. The point is that your, your heart is humble before the Lord that you realize you can't do anything. You can't do anything to deserve God. All you can do is ask for his mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it says that he's justified, not because his actions, but because of his faith and because God is a merciful God. The true nature of faith is humble. It's humble, but don't mistake this for, don't mistake self-deprecation for humility. Don't, Don't mistake some sort of like false, like, oh, I'm just a, uh, yeah, I'm just a terrible person because that's what I'm supposed to say, right? Because that's what they say in church. You know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not good at anything. It's kind of like this, this thing we do, this false humility that we do. And I don't, that's not, again, not, that's presenting an outward action that's not true actually to the heart. This man is not virtuous because he considered himself a worm. Rather, he rightly recognized the virtues of God, that God is holy. And then he realized that he, in comparison, is unholy and unworthy. And in that way, he didn't merely have a low view of himself, he had a true view of himself. And that's what's important. Not to have a low view of yourself, but to have a true view. View of of yourself that me in my in of myself, yeah, I'm unworthy, and yet, because I am in Christ and He is worthy, I am now made worthy. Praise God. Second, it's dependent. We come dependently. It's not about our faith. There's this short scene here that kind of holds the whole middle section of this passage together. We'd almost skim over it otherwise, but that people are bringing infants to Jesus, it says, in order that he would touch them. Most likely, parents are bringing their infants so that Jesus would bless them. And the word, the word here for infants, it, it specifically means babies as opposed to the term later for children. So, so they're literally carrying infants who can't walk or talk to him just so that he would touch them. And in that culture, kids are kind of, they're just not important until you grow up, until you can do something, produce something, have a reasonable conversation, they just weren't very important in that culture. And so, and so the disciples think, oh, we need to, to kind of keep this, stop, stop bothering Jesus and all of his important work talking to these adults. Jesus takes this as an opportunity to illustrate something. Jesus' point here isn't that the kingdom belongs to just, you know, merely physical children. That's not his point. Rather, his point is that the, the childlike attitude and characteristics that are, need, are needed to receive the kingdom, you can see exampled in a child, in an infant either, even. Those who are receivers of the kingdom can be infants all the way to the elderly, when they come with this dependent attitude of faith. I think about a child. By nature, a child is humble. It's dependent. Totally dependent on his or her parents. You know, it's not about what they can bring to the table, right? Because, l- listen, I've, had, I've got a few kids. They don't br- that, especially when they're infants, they don't bring anything to the table, do they? All they bring is something to the budget. Diapers, man. Formula. More clothes, more food, more rooms in the house, man. Oh, my goodness. All they bring is expenses. I'm being a little bit exaggerated, of course. Yet kids come humbly and boldly to their parents for whatever they need, right? Baby. We've got some babies in the room. It's hungry. You know pretty quick, they got one choice, call out for mom. It's call out for mom or die, literally. That's it. They're totally, completely, helplessly dependent. They can't move an inch along the ground unless someone picks them up and carries them. Do we understand our dependence on God? This is how he's describing it. This is how we come to Jesus. All of us, from infants to adults, must come to the Father humbly and boldly, understanding our complete dependence on Him. We don't just... We don't just want Christ. We don't just kind of need Christ for something. We depend on him. Without him, we have nothing. Finally, the nature of faith is complete. Completely. Not trusting in the world's stuff at all. This last scene is this interaction with this rich ruler who asks how he might inherit eternal life. In other words, how do I receive the kingdom then? How do I receive the kingdom? Jesus' response is interesting, and we can kind of break it into three parts. First, he asks, well, why do you call me good? Then he declares, only God is good. And then he says, you know the commandments, essentially implying do those. Do the commandments. But do you notice something interesting? Do you notice something interesting after that? He lists out the commandments, but he only lists five commandments, doesn't he? It's been a while since, maybe it's been a while since you read Exodus, you read the Ten Commandments, but he only lists five of the ten. And I think, you think, well, he's just kind of summarizing whatever. No, 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 no. I think he very specifically lists these exact five, these exact five. He leaves out, think about the ones he leaves out. He leaves out the first four commandments, which are what? That specifically have to do with our relationship to God. Putting God first, not taking his name in vain. Not having any false gods, right? And then he leaves out the 10th commandment, which is what? Don't covet. Has everything to do with, not necessarily what you do, but with your heart attitude towards people and possessions, other people's possessions. So now think about this. The ruler says, the five you listed, Jesus, I've done those. And Jesus doesn't object. My take is, Jesus knows this guy actually legitimately has done those five commandments from his youth diligently. Now, most of us, if we had someone who did those five commandments diligently from their youth, we'd say, this is a super Christian, right? Right? We'd go, oh my gosh, this guy's awesome, the best guy I know, He's he's a good old boy. He's the kind of guy you want to be your neighbor, right? He's also kind of like the Pharisee earlier in the first story, isn't he? He's not an extortioner, he's not unjust. He gives, he fasts. Jesus says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have. Now, listen, this isn't like a secret action, like, oh, well, if you sell all you have, then poof, you're justified. No, that that again would miss the point. We already talked about the Pharisees saying, oh, I give, you know, and that wasn't good enough, justifying yourself by giving. The point isn't the action. Again, as with all of these illustrations, the point is the heart attitude behind it. Jesus is Jesus says that if, it, if he does this, then he will have what? Treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, your heart is. This man's heart was in the things of the world, not in heaven. He was breaking the first four commandments because he was not loving God above all, but he had made an idol of his possessions, and it was revealed in the fact that he was unwilling when directly commanded by Christ to do what Christ said. I love you, God, enough to do the five of the Ten Commandments, but not enough to do the other five. Because in reality, God is not number one. And in reality, I covet my neighbor's possessions. You don't see it because I have so much, but in reality, that's what's going on in my heart. It's hard for one who has a lot to enter the kingdom because they have a lot of things Of the world to trust in instead of God. They can partly trust in God, not completely depend on Him. We need to trust in Christ for all of our life. Whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, it's the same. Trust in Christ for all of life. The issue is not just stuff, it's prioritizing anything above or equal to God. Jesus says, we must be willing to leave house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, this might sound too difficult. It does sound too difficult, does it not? How could I possibly do that? But if we have faith in God, then we trust his promises. And friends, I want want you to get this. There's two promises here I want you to write down. Two promises that maybe you'd skim over When you're reading, first, there is a promise that God is able to do it. What does it say? It says, "Ah, how could could anyone get into the kingdom of God then? His disciples say and Jesus' response, with man, this is impossible. With God, anything is possible. Listen, what is impossible with us is possible with God. You know that you could never save yourself. You haven't been good enough and it's outside of your ability. You need a complete change. when you begin to realize that you are just now in the right place to trust God, to do what only he can do. So the first promise is is that there is a promise that God is able to do it. The second promise is this, there's a promise that God is worth it, that he's worth it. No one, he says, who leaves these things for Christ will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. If you leave all these things for the sake of the kingdom, you will receive many times more, both in this life and the life to come, eternal life. In other words, you will not only inherit life as this rich ruler was asking about, but you will actually receive better things in this life than the rich ruler ever had. I think about my own life and I look back and there's these moments where I had to give up things for God and I, and I just resisted, I resisted. I I couldn't quite let go. And I finally, I let go of that. I said, okay, I'm going to trust you, Christ. And at first, oftentimes, it feels like, what did I do? That's so dumb. But I can tell you that every time in my life that that's happened, I look back now and I go, that was 100% worth it. At the time I didn't, I wasn't sure. At the time I didn't think so. But 100%, that was worth it. 100% God's given me something better back that I didn't even realize. I didn't even realize. We can trust God's promise. It's worth it. But well, here's the reason why we can trust his promise. And it's the third, the third point here. The third aspect of faith. It's the object of faith. And what is the object of faith? Well, Jesus tells them in verses 31 through 34, it's the work of Christ. You see, it's popular, today. it's popular today to see the value of faith, but to place the value of faith in the act of faith itself. In other words, it doesn't really matter what you believe in, so long as you really believe in it. You you see these kinds of things, believe. Faith, you know, people talk about faith. Non-Christians will talk about faith and oftentimes Christians talk about faith in the same way that non-Christians do, unfortunately. And it's sort of this virtuous thing to believe in something, to have faith. Having faith is what gets you through life. No, simply having faith is not what gets you through. I want you to understand that. That's not good enough. It's not good enough. That is subjective, the subjective experience of believing that makes you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm being helped here, that comforts you, it's not sufficient. In fact, that's just another way of saying you trust yourself. Think about that. If it's, if it's like, oh, well, you know, you just need to have faith, My faith in whatever, whoever it is, it doesn't matter what it is, that helps me to feel better, it gives me some comfort today, kind of helps me to get through my day. What am I really trusting in? My ability to have faith? My ability to manipulate my feelings for today? That's spiritualized atheism. That's what that is. If you say the object of faith doesn't matter, then the object of faith always becomes you. It's works righteousness. It's what the Pharisee was doing in the first illustration. It's the exact same thing. It's what the ruler was doing by keeping the five commands but refusing to keep the others. By not actually having faith in Christ that it, he is better than his possessions. The point of this passage is we make really bad objects of faith, you and I. So what ought to be the object of faith? Christ's work. Trusting Christ and his work for all of life. That is the road to the kingdom. First, Christ's work is the means. It is at this point that Jesus reminds his disciples of his purpose. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. That's the repeated line in Luke where Jesus refocuses everyone on his purpose, of why he's alive, why he has come to the world, what he is doing. Here is Jesus on the road to the kingdom. For him, it's the road to the cross. And he will accomplish everything that God said he would, just as Simeon said in Luke 2. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to bring salvation, not just for Jews, but for all peoples, to be a light to the nations. And when Simeon and when Anna saw a baby, an infant, in the temple in Luke 2, Simeon says, I have seen it, seeing Baby Jesus was as good as seeing the salvation done because that's the amount of hope he had because all of his faith was in God. When you have faith in Christ and you reflect on the cross, you have that hope. It is as if it's as good as done. We trust in Jesus' death as accomplishing for us the forgiveness of our sins, we trust in his resurrection that since we are united with him, we will also be raised with him. And it's not some sort of mystical, self uh, promoting faith in faith kind of thing, it is faith in Christ. We depend on Christ, we're humbly come to Christ. Christ's work is not only the means, it's also the motivation. Since Jesus gave up everything for our sake, we are now motivated to give up everything for Him, for His kingdom. Because we know that He'll accomplish it. We know it's a good trade. We do it gladly because we know He's able and He's worth it. We are not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers. We We fast and we give, but not to earn the kingdom like the Pharisee, not to try to earn it, but because we have already been given the kingdom, because it is our inheritance in Christ. We come to Jesus boldly for blessing, not because we are so important, but because we are not, and yet we know he will bless us like children. We obey all the commands not to earn eternal life, but because we've been adopted through Christ and we already have eternal life. And because living out the commands of Christ right now is eternal life to us right now. It is life. You want to know when Jesus said, I've come to bring life and life to the full, what abundant life is? Abundant life is obedience to Christ. That's abundant life. And if you think that abundant life is something other than obedience to Christ, if you think obedience to Christ is something other than life, then you are not believing in the right thing. You do not yet know what Christ has done for you. You do not yet know who Jesus is. How? How could we say that Christ died on a cross for us and then believe that his commands are something other than life? That is maybe the most significant cognitive dissonance ever known to man. It makes no sense. And Christ's work is not only the means, it's not only the motivation, but it's also the method. Jesus suffered injustice first before God glorified him, and we need to remember that. So too should we expect a similar pattern for how God works through his body. There are seasons of injustice in which we stand for truth and we suffer for it. But, we, but our hope is in the fact that out of these seasons, we can trust that victory will come. Because Christ doesn't just take sort of bad situations and make them good. He, he doesn't just take bad situations and make them like us able to get through them because, well, Jesus. No, he takes bad situations and he actually turns them for real, objective, positive goods. It wasn't just that Joseph trusted God and so he somehow managed to get through prison in Egypt. No, God sent him there for a purpose and he took the bad and he actually made it positively good in the world. He's doing that in your life as well, even if you can't see it. That's faith. This is a mystery. all those who lack the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 34. The, The disciples didn't understand it. They didn't get it. But as soon as the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, what does it say? Acts 2, 36, Peter is there on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. He's preaching a message. And what does he say? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter gets it now. His eyes are opened by faith, power of the Holy Spirit. If we desire to see many come down the road to the kingdom then we must be willing to travel the road to Jerusalem in any or all of our lives the road of suffering We can't come over the hill and see the next hill in front of us see the suffering see the hurdle and turn off to the left because I don't want to Do we hope do we actually believe That that obstacle is not just an obstacle, but it's something that God is using to propel his kingdom forward. Trusting Christ for all of life is the road to the kingdom. It's the road to the kingdom. There's a series of Psalms, Psalm 120 to 134. Maybe you've not noticed this, but at the header of them, it says a song of a sense on all of them. And that little header there, when it says a song of a sense, that's actually in the Hebrew text. It's, it's, it's the Bible. It's not just something that the translators of the ESV made up. And these songs of a sense, they were sung by the people of God when they were pilgriming, when they were walking the road to Jerusalem themselves. See, they'd come to Jerusalem for feasts for celebrations, to remember what God had done, and to look forward to what the Messiah would do. And so as they walked along the road, going to Jerusalem, just as Jesus is going to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs that that David and different people had written that would reflect on the the mighty victories that God had won and would call them to faith and would celebrate and give thanks to God and would look forward to the Messiah who would one day do this great thing that the prophets have talked about. As we pilgrim through this world, we remember what Messiah has done for us in his first coming and what he will do when he comes again. And one Psalm in particular, Psalm 131 It describes poetically the faith of the Christian, a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a faith that is childlike, humble, dependent, and complete, and a faith that leads to hope. And so I want to end by reading this psalm to you. Would you listen as I read it? And would you pray it with me as I read it? O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. forevermore. Amen.